Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to be reading verses 13 to 35. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Hear now, for this is God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest right out from the outset. And isn't it good when the preacher says, I'm going to be honest from the beginning? You want that to, to come from the preacher's mouth. I'm going to be honest from the very beginning, from, from, from the get-go. All right? The sermon title this morning is entitled, What You Win Them With Is What You Win Them To. I did not come up with that phrase. I actually got that phrase from a book by Jared Wilson. The book is called The Prodigal Church. And in that book, Jared Wilson, he, he outlined or, or, he, or he recalls his church planting experience. He got together with some guys, they planted a church in the South, and they planted the church around the mentality that we're going to wow people into the kingdom. We're going to wear skinny jeans, we're going to get fog machines, we're going to get loud praise bands, we're going to get lights, and we're just going to wow them right to the kingdom. We're going to just blow their socks off. And they drew a crowd. The problem is that, is that the church is not in the business of drawing crowds. The church is in the business of gathering the people. And there's a difference. For Jared, after a few years, he got, he got sickened by this. He got a, a bad taste in his mouth because he discovered what they were winning them with allowed the 
guitars and the lights. And, and, and hear me, I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm a musician. I'm a guitarist, and I can rock it out with a best of. <laughs> I love those things. Those things aren't inherently evil. But what Wilson noticed was that this church, they invested their time in winning people with that. And thus, they were one to it. And so anytime they tried to bring the people back to the centrality of the gospel, the people would walk away because they were one with the fantastic and not one with the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I spent, uh, I was sharing with, uh, with Skyler last night, I spent 12 or 13 years in full-time youth ministry. And in 2005, I came across a book called Soul Searching. And the subtitle was The Religious Lives of American Teenagers. Written by Christian Smith and, and uh, uh, I forget the last, I think it was the other lady, I think it was Melinda Ditton. And, what, and, and, and they, they surveyed two, 3,000 religious teenagers. These are teenagers who went to church. These were, these were active teenagers who went to youth group every Wednesday night, every Sunday night, went to the soccer training, went to all the small group things, went to all the camps and the mission trips, and they, and they did a, a hardcore survey of what these teenagers believed. And they coined a phrase based on, the, based on the, the evidence that they found. The phrase was this, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. That by and large, American teenagers believe that there is a God but the God that they believe in only intends good for them. And that this God that, that they believe in that only intends good for them is far off and doesn't interfere into, in, in the affairs of the world very often. And that, and that this God teaches that if you are good enough, then you can't get into heaven. These are church teenagers. And the reason why they believe this is because by and large, the youth ministry culture that I came up in, they were won over with the fantastic. They were won over with, with the loud guitars and the bright lights. They were won over with these things. So they expected it. And so when they left church at the age of 18, they never came back until around the age of 30. You know why they came back? Because they had kids. And they figured they needed to get their kids' religion also. And what I want to lay before you this morning as a church, and I want to lay before Skylar this morning, is a challenge. And what I want to look at in the text, I want to look at the the, the disciple-maker par excellence, Jesus himself. If there was ever a time for someone to be won over by the fantastic, by the wow factor, it was in Luke 24. But Jesus doesn't give them the wow factor. He gives them the mundane, the boring, the persistent, consistent. He does something incredible here. So take the text, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24 and go with me to verses 13 and 35. First of all, I want you to notice what just happened. What has just happened? The resurrection of Jesus Christ has just happened. You're talking about fantastic, right? The, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The stone was rolled away. Amen? Amen. That is a beautiful and wonderful thing. That's the most important thing that happened in all the universe. This fantastic, wonderful, cosmic thing just happened. And you have these two disciples who are walking along, along the road. They just they, they, they heard about Jesus of Nazareth dying. They heard about their, their Lord and Savior dying, and, and they're confused, and they're, they're left in, in confusion. And Jesus comes up next to them. And what does Jesus do? He hides himself from them. And so I want us to see three things. All right, Pastor Tim will tell you. I sort of have a sort of alliteration problem, right? Three things. And no, I'm not quoting John Calvin, all right? That would be a Presbyterian term. True Presbyterian term. I tried to, but I couldn't think of it. Three things I also see this morning. First of all, event. Event. Number two, engage. 
And number three, everyone's favorite word, evangelize. Invent, engage, and evangelize. Well, as I noticed, notice that there's confusion over what just happened. There's confusion over the resurrection. What does this mean? Our, our Savior has died. Why was there confusion and sadness over what happened? They had their facts straight, did they not? Look at chapter 24, verse 19. Everybody take your eyes and look at chapter 24, verse 19. They had their facts straight. They said to him, speaking of Jesus whom they do not recognize, they said concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were in the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had they even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. They have all the theological facts straight. They have all the theological doctrines right in order. They knew the events that had taken place. But their problem was that their presupposition was wrong. What was their presupposition? What, were they, what was their conclusion? Look at verse 21. Look at chapter 24, look at verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, what was the problem with their assumption? What was the problem with their conclusion? Their problem was they did not believe that suffering factored into Jesus doing what he had come to do as the Messiah. They didn't factor in that he was going to be punished. They didn't factor in that he was going to actually die. They didn't factor in that he was going to be buried in a borrowed tomb. They didn't factor all these things in. In their view, Jesus was going to be a Messiah who was going to win victory for them through power and strength. But that's not what Christ came to do. Christ came to win victory for his people through weakness. And so they're confused by this. And how does Jesus respond to this confusion? I mean, just to say, all right, listen, guys, you, you guys are really close, all right? Come on, you can figure it out. Just broke your way. Figure out a way you want to go. Anyway's fine for me, as long as you find some way to be. Because you're, you're almost there, guys. Keep going, keep going, keep going. That's not what he does, does he? Jesus himself brings clarity to their confusion. He seeks to change their sadness into joy. And he does this by changing their presupposition. And thus, he changes their understanding of their recent events. And how does he do this? By pointing out that the recent events weren't really that recent. Look at chapter 24, verses 25 and 26. What does Jesus say to them? He doesn't say, you're almost there, fellas. You almost got it. Close, right? Participation trophy for almost getting it. No. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Notice that Jesus is not rebuking them because of their misunderstanding of the recent events. He rebukes them for not believing that all the scripture is centered on Christ and Christ as the goal of scripture. Their belief is not based on scripture. Which means that what happens in chapter 24 is the most important event in all of the universe. What Jesus is basically saying to them is this. You don't believe rightly because you don't believe in the Bible. Hmm. You don't believe rightly because you don't believe in what the scripture has to say. 
that all of redemptive history is about me. The, 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 Bible is the, is, the Bible has its goal as Christ, and the Bible has its center as Jesus Christ himself. I, I, uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, and uh, <coughs> FYI, Baptists make the best Presbyterians. <laughs> Can I get an amen for the four Baptists?
Great question. I'll tell you one. Turn to Acts chapter 8. This is why. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. If you have your iPhones, exercise that phone. Okay? Turn to Acts chapter 8. The reason why he does it this way is to ground post-resurrection Christians in the gospel from all of Scripture. He was preparing these two guys. He's making disciples. You notice that what he's doing? Jesus is making disciples. This is how you make a disciple. You sit down with them. You open up the Bible with them and show them the goodness and greatness of Jesus Christ. Skylar, it's that easy. Don't overthink it, man. Church growth strategies, read all the leadership books you want. Those are great. But the way you're going to win them over to the gospel is to sit down with them and invest their lives with them in the gospel. Open the Bible with them. And, and I believe this was an example. Look at Acts chapter 8. Look at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 35. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 35. Look what Philip does. He's copying Jesus. Watch this now. What does Jesus do? Sit down with these two guys, and Jesus interprets them. And FYI, to get really nerdy with you, the original Greek for that word interpretation or interpreted there in, in Luke 24 is the same word where we get our English word hermeneutic, which is the art and science of, of interpreting scripture. And we see this word pop up, or this phrase pop up here in Acts 8. Look at Acts 8. Look at verse 26. <laughs> now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Arise and go toward the south to the road that goes from goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I? Here's this Greek word. It's, it's retranslated as guide, but it really means interpret, hermeneutic. How can, how can I, uh, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. You're talking about softball passages, Isaiah 53, right, Tim? I mean, it's just like, I mean, if you can't make a beeline to Christ from here, you got problems. <laughs> like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before the shearer is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say? And so what say this about? Himself or someone else? And listen to this. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about what? Jesus. The same exact thing Jesus does in Luke 24, Philip's doing. The same thing that Philip does, they did it 300 years later. The same, the same thing they did 300 years later, Calvin and the Reformers did in the Reformation. The same thing that they do, we do today. We don't need to change our methods, ladies and gentlemen. We need to get back in the Bible. Open the Word. Dig. Find. And if you get confused, you have a pastor. You have elders. You now have an associate pastor. Have conversations. Where's Jesus in the book of Leviticus? Where's Jesus in the Song of Solomon? We don't need new schemes. We need to do the same old thing the right way. Skyler, give those to whom you minister to Christ from all of Scripture. I've been in the full-time ministry now for I think 18 years. 
pastor, as a pastor and as a youth pastor, as I mentioned. And there's, there's a lot of scholars, there's going to be seasons where you don't see any fruit. Especially you. There's just nothing there to do. <laughs> you figure it out, you let me know. Okay? There's going to be seasons where there's going to be dry. You're going to be pleading, you're going to be imploring, you're going to be preaching the gospel, you're going to be on fire. Why don't they get it? But let me tell you something there's going to be that one kid. That one kid. Who's going to come to your office. And there's going to be a light bulb go over his or her head. And they're going to be like, I think I got it. And if you spend your whole ministerial career for that one kid, brother, it's worth it. Because you gave them Jesus. Ian Gibson. Ian Gibson uh, was a short little pipsqueak of a kid when I got to be the youth pastor at Faith Presbyterian Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. Unsure of himself, shy. I mean, just a ball of anxiety. And I was able to develop a relationship with him, and Ian is now a ruling elder at Faith Presbyterian Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. And then because I was like this fantastic youth pastor, because I had no idea what I was doing. I still have no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. But all I had, Scott, I didn't have my brains. I didn't have my wit. I didn't have my talent. All I had was Jesus from Scripture. Matthew Rogers, another Matthew, another kid. I went back to visit the, the church a few years later after I finished seminary, and, and I, was, I was there visiting some friends because we had some friends there in the St. Pete area. And his brother came to me and said, We go talk to Matthew. He's got into drugs. He's been arrested. We go talk to him. He was in my youth group. He walked away from the church. I got in contact with him and I, I met him for dinner at Applebee's. And I basically said, Stop being an idiot. Because I had that relationship with him. What are you doing, man? Four years later, he's married as a youth pastor. Again, not because of anything I did. But one day we stood in the kitchen of one of my youth parents and he said, The only reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because you showed me Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Or Cole, Cole Johnson, who's now a missionary. And you'll get emails from kids. And they'll thank you, not because you wow them with, like, you know, guitar solos, or you wow them with lockets, which they should ban, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're going to call you and email you and write you because you sat down with them on the road of confusion. Like these two disciples who were confused and just didn't know what to believe. And Jesus, instead of wowing them, sat down with them and said, let me show you where I am in the scriptures. Let me tell you about my grace. Let me tell you about my goodness. Let me tell you about my glory. Let me tell you about my, my sacrifice on your behalf. So you may have God himself as, as your inheritance. Right? And what do you, what do you like to you know, I always get to get on to people for this because a lot of people say, you know, when I get to heaven, I've got like 10 questions for Moses. No, you don't. <laughs> right? You're not going to, you're not going to, Moses, oh, give me Moses. You're going to be basking in God's glory. You're going to be like so amazed. We're going to laugh after. But let's play that game, okay? <laughs> if I could pick one part of the scripture where I could like drop in, what did Jesus say to these two guys? I mean, open up Genesis 3. And say, hey, listen, remember when your first parents fell? But remember Genesis 3.15, you would see the Lord crush the head of the serpent. What about Genesis 3.21? Remember Genesis 3.21? See, they had victims. They tried to cover their own shame. But God said, your attempt to cover your shame is not good enough. I'm going to take a life and spill blood to cover your shame and give you my provisional covenant. Right? Maybe Genesis 15. 
where, 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 where God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to take all the covenant curses for your disobedience, which Christ did on the cross, right? Or maybe you can fast forward to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. If there's any attempt, you can make a conclusion about Christ from the Passover, right? You take the blood of the lamb, you sprinkle it over the doorpost, and then if death passes over you, you find life because of the blood of the lamb. Or maybe Jesus took him to Isaiah 53. Or maybe one of my favorites, Zechariah 3. I love Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3, uh, Zechariah sees a, a vision of Joshua High Priest standing before God, the judgment seat of God, and he's clothed, and he, he's covered with filthy clothes, but he took Hebrew. The word's not filthy, is it? It's human excrement. His clothes are covered with human excrement. And Satan stands accusing him. Rightfully so, by the law, he should be destroyed. But what does God say to Satan? The Lord rebuked you, Satan. I will take away your filthy garments and clothe you with pure vestments so you may serve me. And the gospel is this, that Christ took our filth upon himself and gave us his pure vestments. Right? That's what we must show these students and these families over and over and over and over again. That Christ is in all of Scripture and Christ is the highest goal, not only in Scripture, but for our lives. So engage them with the event of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And lastly, uh, but definitely not least, evangelize. Turn back with your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 24. What does this cause them to do? After Jesus taught them some good, solid, reformed biblical theology, did they hide up their ivory towers and naval games? Absolutely not. This good, solid, gospel-centered, reformed biblical theology caused them to do something. Look at chapter 24, verses 28 to 35. Notice what left them in awe. What left them in awe? So he went to stay with them, verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he did what? Talk to us on the road. While he opened to us the what? Scriptures. Their hearts burned with passion within them, not when they saw Jesus revealed physically, but when Jesus helped them to, help them to discover him for themselves in the Bible scripturally. That's how you light people's hearts aflame. That's how you're going to light Thomasville, Georgia aflame. That's how you're going to light Thomas County aflame. That's how you're going to light a lot of Georgia aflame. It's by proclaiming the gospel. That's what like, that's what like, I love it when, when, when I, when I, I did something, don't do this, okay? I, one of my, my first youth ministry job was in Slocum, Alabama. How many of you guys know Slocum, Alabama? All right, fantastic. Like five of them. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there for five years. And, and, and I do things the hard way. Don't do it the hard way. Okay, I learned the hard way. And so when I first got there, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to take these. I'll take these students to the book of Revelation. So <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. And I stumbled and staggered and eventually got my way around Revelation 19, I think I found my legs. But I had students coming from other churches because I was taking them through the book of Revelation. No other church was doing that because I was leading them through the Bible. Right? And then I said, well, okay, they took Revelation. Let's take these students, let's take these teenagers through the book of Leviticus. 
what's really awesome is that they would go to high school. They would go to high school. They'd go, hey, are you Pastor Jesus in the book of Leviticus? <laughs> and I would get these kids coming. And I would teach them Jesus from the book of Leviticus. And the, the, what they thanked me for was that they, I was doing something that their church was not doing to Brothers and sisters, we need to teach our people how to read the Bible. We need to teach our people how to read the Bible. Praise God that it's gonna, Dr. 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 Tim's going to help you guys do family devotions. That's, that's awesome. Teaching kids, teaching kids, teaching parents how to read the Bible and teach their kids how to read the Bible. That's the fundamental thing that must take place in the life of every Christian if we're going to evangelize our community. Now, that's what happens next. Their heart is burned on fire, and then lastly, look at this. They're motivated to do something. After discovering Christ in all scripture, they're motivated to do something. What did they do? Look at verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. And these eleven were saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. But they had their own testimony. Look at verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Discovering Christ in the scriptures motivated them to talk about Jesus. Talk about Christ. Scott, I want to encourage you with something. And brother, I don't know it all. I mean, my parents are here. Ask them. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I know just only one thing. Build your ministry around the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel law. If you win them with the gospel, you will win them to the gospel. And then what they'll expect is the gospel every single time. And you'll, you'll be able to take part into seeing these students feast on the gospel. And let me encourage you with one last thing. Your business is not into keeping people. There'll be some students who walk away because they want to play volleyball for two hours, or they want to do this for whatever. There's going to be some students who will walk away because you are presenting the gospel. Take heart, brother. Once again, the church is not the business of, of drawing, drawing a crowd. The church is the business of gathering people. And that's going to be your job here at First Presbyterian Church Thomasville. is to gather these families and the students around the gospel of Jesus Christ and to feed them the gospel from all of Scripture. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, you tell us in your word how, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God, prepare the feet of Skyrock to bring the gospel and everything that he does and he says here at First Presbyterian Church of Thomasville. May he develop a reputation among students and among the families here of being a man who is a gospel man. Father, I pray for his wife. I pray that you build her up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you make her a partner with Skylar in presenting and, and in loving these students in the gospel. Help her to have a fiery love for your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you cover her. You cover her with your loving care. Father, thank you for what you've done for us today as a result of your word. May we leave this place with our hearts burning because of your Son, Jesus Christ.
And all these things ask your sons, precious name, and all those people said. Amen. Amen.